This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Easy RPG Systems. The Rogue Stop Signs of Cranston. And my Big Apple Book Haul. Okay, Ken, we've been summoned, I mean, invited, to attend another gloriously gloomy party at Castle Slogar. Remember, keep your eyes peeled and your reflexes ready. The Slogar's festering festivity involves more cleavers than confetti. Where did everyone disappear to? Did they all get ludicrously lost in the hedge maze again? I think I heard muffled laughter, or was that sobbing? It's coming from behind that door. Of course it's locked. Just our luck. Hold your skeletal horses, Ken. Look at the floor. The tiles have markings, just like in that puzzle game book I have. Unhappy birthday at Castle Slogar. Aha, found the book. How will a book about a birthday gone wrong help us find a party that might not even exist? Well, in Unhappy Birthday at Castle Slogar, things go awfully awry during Melissa Slogar's latest ninth birthday party. Guests are lost and Lord Slogar is missing. Sound familiar? Whoa, that's eerily similar. Wait, the book has a map. Oh, but it's blank. How do we navigate with that? Patience, Ken. The book describes each room and the exquisitely eerie obstacles you have to overcome. You can even use a special website to check your answers, get hints, and unveil the map as you explore. So we need to solve a puzzle in this room to get to the party in the next room. You're catching on now. Let's see. I remember the foyer puzzle involved. And then you... And just my... And voila! Look, the password! And the door! It's unlocked! Now let's go party like it's 1899! Hey, uh, can I borrow that puzzle game book? No way! It's mine! But you can get your own copy of Unhappy Birthday at Castle Slogar from Atlas Games at atlas-games.com slash b-d-a-y. The rattle of die, the thump of your pensive thumb hitting a sheet of carefully designed character, the crunch of Doritos and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut, where beloved Patreon backer Hector Trelane asks, your post on the easy one-shot system on the Pelgrane website is quite thought-provoking a system that's nearly mechanicless. Hector is also intrigued because he recently played the game The Skeletons by the great Jason Morningstar, also a nearly mechanicless system. What he thought would be a very edge-of-comfort freeform uh, turned out to be just fine. They didn't miss the mechanics at all because the questions and choices in the heart of The Skeletons made a decision-driven narrative, just like regular tabletop games, which causes Hector to ask, are RPG mechanics, die rolls, spends, card plays, choices during leveling up, really player decisions in disguise, and the real heart of the art form is overlapping and interlacing player decisions to yield an emergent narrative. Are these the Ur tablets of gaming, Robin, and have you already discovered it? Is this the root language of game design that can lead us to a less cluttered, more satisfying gameplay? Right. So, to sum up, uh, for those of you who are about to look up the easy one-shot system on the Pelgrane Press blog... It's so easy, we can sum it up. We can sum it up. So, basically, this is something that I whipped up together for one-shot play, especially casual play, where you don't want to spend really any time at all teaching rules or really using much in the way of rules. And the character generation then is just a series of questions that you ask to each of the participants and they define their characters and also their relationships to each other within whatever situation you decide to uh, tackle. In the case of the one that uh, I ran for you, Ken, and the rest of the Pelgrane game, it was a sort of a player versus player thing on an installation on Mars where you discover that the boss has newly taken over your installation and uh, there's only oxygen pills for 
three quarters of the uh, staff. And so you have to decide who doesn't get oxygen pills anymore. And so the idea is to have something that is about interplay, which I think Hector is suggesting is indeed the root of a lot of, if not all, satisfying role-playing experiences, because we can think of ones where interplay doesn't matter so much. Yeah. But here, that's the, the main attraction. And the idea is to have something that has as light a mechanical load as you can, because, you know, maybe you're drinking the same amount of wine that you would at, at a dinner party, you know, the level where you're just being funny and fun, not the level where you're legless and unable to proceed. And it's a fun, casual night. Now, I wouldn't necessarily put that forward as a template for anything beyond that experience. It's not called the easy extended campaign system. So we've got a number of questions to tackle here. One of them would be, are designers creating more space for this? Another would be, are gamers demanding more of this? Is there a bigger space for that to happen? And I guess the third one would be, is this, in fact, the core basis of role-playing all the time? Ken, which of those three do you want to tackle? Well, I think we can start with our designers creating these, and I think the answer is clearly yes. The sort of LARP and freeform traditions, often in Europe and Australia, begin to filter back to a mainstream game design. You do see more of this sort of thing. The, you know, the, the indie revolution brought a ton of it out not just in character creation. I mean, we can look at the parallels between dread and uh, fear itself, for example, as sort of parts of that same taproot coming out. But I, I think it's clear that there are many designers who are interested in a, a less mechanic filled space that focuses on iterative decision-making as the core of play. Now is that, you know, the actual core of all role-playing everywhere I am not sure that decision-making per se is the core iterative something leading to emergent narrative design. I would absolutely say, and player decision is as good a thing as anything to use as the iteration. I think that iterative, you know, tiny war games also works really great. Right. You have plenty of decision-making in a very complicated war game and mm -hmm. no interaction. And you certainly have tabletop games that, verge toward that, yeah. sometimes uh, rather experimental ones that are uh, trying to test the boundaries of how much characterization can you not have in yeah. a role-playing game as in 316. Right, exactly. And so I think that iterative something leading to emergent play is the actual core that Hector has seen. And I think that Hector is certainly part of an audience that exists. I don't know how big that audience is because... It's never been tested with an absolutely, you know, multiple thousand print run game. No one has not. I did not release Vampire as iterative question asking as the core of it. I released it with mechanics that drive play in, a, in, in many ways. So I don't know that we're going to see that question tested, but I do know that the degree of skull sweat involved in the iterations dropped significantly between say third edition and fifth edition in Dungeons and Dragons. It'll be interesting to see if that's a trend or just two marks on a graph, right? Right. So designers definitely are working this space and have been for a really long time. Right? Yeah. There's nothing that new or innovative about, you know, my little easy one shot system. It's just mm -hmm. something that, that worked well and was simple and did the job. And I think that there's certainly a larger, pool of people interested in the light mechanics, high characterization end of things, but that's existed uh, since LARP. I think there are more of them now because there are more people in the hobby in general. Mm -hmm. And I think there are also more people interested in more mechanical, more tactical games because it's D&D &D is also uh, growing. And yeah, and, grown, Pathfinder, and, and Pathfinder, it did not die on the vine. It, it flourished yes. like a beautiful flower. Now, I think there's a an additional interesting factor, though, which is that many people who have an aesthetic preference for very complicated games and will therefore choose them and play them, in fact, strip big chunks of them away at the gaming table while still being emotionally engaged with the idea that there's something complicated with all sorts of nuts and bolts, but in fact are moving more toward this sort of iterative decision-making being the focus while putatively playing a very crunchy, tactical, complicated game that may involve 
a certain amount of what you would, uh, an outside observer may consider time. You know, why are you spending, you know, two sessions on character generation when it turns out you actually ignore a lot of this stuff to begin with? Because the other countervailing thing about stripping role-playing to an urtext, whether you agree that this is it or there's some other core experience, is that the great nerd tribe likes complexity. <laughs> That's why they call us nerds. And people like detailed things with lots of edges and flanges and, and things to uh, manipulate. And they like to feel they're there, even when they're ignoring them. And so there's also a disconnect, I think, between the complexity of a game and the complexity that is actually present at the table on any given evening. And that varies tremendously from group to group and especially from GM to GM. Yeah, and, and you only have to look at, as a reverse example, rather than D&D getting simpler, you can look at the game Fate getting more and more complex or, or having more and more structure mapped for it, shall I say. And, and Fate, of course, began as a very dirt-simple game and at its core still is a very dirt-simple game. But the fate community has requested and rewarded adding more kinds of things you can do with it, more codification and complexity put into the, into the fate, you know, sort of box that you start with. And then as you say, they go through it and they play with some of it, but not the rest of it. But I think selecting your Legos is a big part of any sort of experience, whether it be, I'm going to really get into cooking. Well, I'm going to really get into cooking Thai food, or I'm going to cook Thai food, but I'm going to buy pre-chopped ingredients because who has all that kind of time? You know, all of this, you can recognize this in other sorts of nerd uh, habits, as you say. And again, I feel like one of the interesting problems is when you get your box of Legos and you think, I have to make something with all of these Legos. And if that audience takes over, you see a problem like you had with GURPS, which is another great, simple, superb core mechanic game that has a lot of Falderall that you can play with. And I think that the you have to use all the Falderall fans sort of took over the message boards at some invisible coup and drove the development of that game in a way. So I think a lot of designers are working in dialogue or in imagined dialogue with their most vocal fans, and those can be the all-complexity-all-the-time fans, or it can be the Hector-style, oh my god, it's just asking questions fans. And I feel like, you know, a lot of this is just, you know, what's in the water at the given moment? You know, what what's the zeitgeist amongst the, the, the crowd of gamers you see at Gen Con, or increasingly see online? What does that look like? And that will create questions. The phenomenon you're talking about where people on the message boards are demanding more rules and therefore get more rules and then certain rule systems then start to collapse under their own weight is a factor of the fact that rules are a thing you can talk about online. <laughs> you can also talk about theory, but that exists on a sort of an elevated level above uh, where the games are. And and there's still no uh, common vocabulary for it, so you can't actually talk about There's still about no theory. common vocabulary. <laughs> and People get people get shirty about anything on the internet. They certainly get shirty about mechanics. They get even shirtier, history has told us, about <laughs> different classification systems. So there is that risk as a designer that you will keep getting asked for more complexity, and you will think that the fact that the number of requests for complexity is related to the number of people who want complexity, and that can be a big mistake because, again, it's something that, you know, just talking about the cool things that happened in your group that night, some people will do that online, but it doesn't engender discussion particularly. So the things that people can argue about and articulate are not necessarily the things that people want. I thought I'd quickly go back and throw in uh, Powered by the Apocalypse as an, another example of something that sort of crosses the streams between stripped down, yet also complex and codified. So I think the answer is always is, is role-playing design evolving in a particular direction that can be pinned down is, well, it's evolving in every direction. As long as people are continuing to design games, they'll continue to noodle with things that are more complicated than they would have wanted to do a year before or are meeting the complications, or in the case of this, something that really strips everything down. An interesting test to see how complicated a game is based on what the designer thinks other people want and what they will actually use is to sit down and play a game with a designer. <laughs> <laughs> and you will find a lot of the time that they are stripping stuff out like crazy in order to 
make the moment more interesting. And that's true times 10 in a one shot or, you know, convention scenario environment where you want to really get to it. And that suggests again that the degree of strip downness relates to the experience you're having and how much time you have and how much you want to devote to that. So, you know, the different situations will also create in the same people different demands for levels of minimalism. And as you say, the easy one shot is the easy one shot, not the easy campaign. In an iterative campaign, complexity provides affordances for future decisions to be made. So the endless building of your spaceship in GURPS becomes a way to discuss half in character and half in mechanics space, the kind of game you want to play and what you want to be doing in the campaign. And it's a terrific little mini game. I think maybe it could be slightly more accessible to people who don't want to open a spreadsheet, but that's maybe just me. But these sorts of mini games that happen, and that includes, I think, leveling up and deciding your feet tree, that includes uh, building your, your castle together or your coven in uh, Ars Magica or whatever it happens to be. Any of these little mini games that happen definitionally only in a campaign are also complexity, but they're also affordances and they're also answering questions, as Hector, I'm sure, would point out and maybe even is pointing out right now as he listens to this very segment. Well, my copy of the script is just crashed, so it's time for me to open it up again. And in that time, we will listen to this here exciting commercial. Polyrain Press invites you to a reality-shattered mask ball. With three new support products for the Yellow King role-playing game. Black Star Magic, a guide to supernatural powers in the four realms haunted by the King in Yellow. Where every spell is potent. A potent shock card, that is. Includes magic rules and their accompanying shock cards by Robin. And a magic-rich scenario for each of the four sequences. Dancer at the Bone Cabaret, Sarah Saltiel's Tale of Belle Epoque Terror. A Casket at Latil. Village-based military horror from Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Memories of a Dream Clown, Ruth Kitchen Tillman's visitation with everyone's favorite Aftermath children's entertainer. And Sarah's Love Wears No Mask, which brings Carcosa to its natural contemporary home, reality television. Also out now, Legions of Carcosa, the bestiary for the Yellow King. From alien parasites to warped human conspirators. From hungry buildings to incarnations of drought. From gods torn from the pages of myth to war machines that hunt in wolf-like packs. Legions of Carcosa presents 86 new foes to mystify, haunt, and menace your investigators. Fresh from the skull-mashed minds of John R. Harness, Kira Magrin, Sam Saltiel and Monica Valatinelli with Daniel Kwan. Finally, you can now also grab Robin's latest novel, Fifth Imperative. Follow the technician, previously seen in The Missing and the Lost, as he continues his reluctant political rise and discovers a bullet that refuses to follow the rules. Kicking off a fast-paced supernatural alternate reality political thriller. Yep, it's one of those again. All three available now. That's Black Star Magic, Legions of Carcosa, and Fifth Imperative. Available at Royally Superior your local game stores or at the Pelgrane Press web shop. It's time to step into a room where there's all sorts of cool racks and in those racks there are tubes and in the tubes we'll pop off the ends and we'll unfurl them on the big old beautiful table because this is the cartography hut where we're looking at, at maps, locations, relationships between those two things and this time can our map uh, has a lot of stop signs on it, and some of those stop signs are looking shifty and unauthorized because estimable Patreon Baker Christian Gronseth points us to an article about a Rhode Island town where all sorts of undocumented road signs, particularly stop signs, started sprouting up about 10 years ago. And like, I don't know, the little engine that could or the pig that Charlotte saved, they had a miraculous event where these illegal stop signs transubstantiated, and many, if not all of them, became real, like the Velveteen Rabbit. That's what I was looking for, the Velveteen Rabbit. Ken, <laughs> tell us about the Velveteen Rabbit of signage. The Velveteen Rabbit of stop signs was made manifest in Cranston, Rhode Island, which, if there can be a suburb of Providence, that's what it is. It's a city just southwest of Providence, Rhode Island. And in 2010, 
they discovered that they had 692 extra stop signs that they had not put up. They being the city public works department. They being the, the town fathers of Cranston, the city council of Cranston had not authorized these stop signs. And the way they discovered it is people were running stop signs and they would contest the ticket and say, that's not a real stop sign. And then they would look it up and it turned out in about a quarter of the cases, it was not a real stop sign. And at some point, this became common enough that judges were just dismissing traffic tickets. And if you know anything about how little towns or small cities make their money, you know that that's a big chunk of town revenue right there going away. So they had to do something. Chaos was raining. Chaos indeed reigned. So the uh, people thought maybe that the mob put up stop signs for some reason, or the cops just decided to put it up to get more income, or maybe it's crop circles. Who can say? But the city had authorized 1,903 of these stop signs. There were a total of 2,595 stop signs for a total, as I say, of 692 extra signs. So they took a vote in June of 2010 to legalize them all just grandfather all the stop signs in that failed five four apparently someone said should we just be encouraging this (laughs) (laughs) so the city did a study and i think i want to put a couple of quotes around something but what that means is three workers drove around cranston and cross-checked all the signs against the official list of signs and it took until february of 2011 for them to get it back on the docket which means seven signs a day give or take which does not seem onerous to me as a former Department of Transportation employee. Bob and Frank and Jim have other things to do every day. Plus it gets snowy and maybe they can't get out. It's not their only thing they're doing. Not their only job. Once they, you know, deal with the messed up fire hydrant or the door to the public washroom. uh, Or the ghost. Then you go look for some rogue stop signs. Right. So anyway, they checked them all. They brought their records back to the city and they took a second uh, unanimous vote in February of 2011 to keep 587 of the undocumented stop signs. Also to keep seven yield signs. Yield signs are in this mix somehow, but it doesn't seem like as many. And it transpires that about a third of the 692 stop signs were put up by the state and it just never told the city. <laughs> So not that unauthorized, really. Not unauthorized, super authorized, like they came down from a higher order of being. And the city is still removing 21 of those stop signs just to show the state of Rhode Island that it can't be pushed around, and two yield signs. It would seem there's, there's, I I don't know America, (laughs) but it would seem like there's a jurisdictional issue. And certainly here in Ontario, the provincial government is anxious to do as little as possible as it can in the city. So it is odd that the state is... uh, delving down into municipal affairs. And I guess that's part of our weird mystical explanation. We'll have to account for that. Right. And we also have to remember that Rhode Island is a very small state and all of it put together makes a medium sized city. So, so jurisdiction is simply notional is what I'm hearing in in many cases. And also it's hugely corrupt. So if someone wants a stop sign, you just who do you know to give twenty dollars to to get your stop sign put up? Anyway, uh, many of them were just put up by local housing developments that they felt that the road outside their housing development was unsafe, so they added a stop sign. Again, didn't bother to tell the city. Some of them put up by previous police chiefs who apparently used to have the power to put up a stop sign without telling the city council, and after they changed that law, they still did it. That's weird. <laughs> Police not following the civilian authorities. Mayor Traficante, by the way, great name, of Cranston. At one point during this, one of the papers in the area got to him and he said, oh, that's probably me. I authorized a bunch of stop signs. It was unsafe. I did it for safety. And so he just sort of single-handedly maybe spawned some of these signs. But the larger point being, Robin, that 692 extra signs, cabalistically, And here's a little hint about Kabbalah for the kids. And I guess if you're not over 40 and married and Jewish, don't listen. But here's a hint about the Kabbalah. If a number doesn't quite come out to what you want, just add one for the unity because God is everywhere. So 693 is Gafrith, the number of sulfur and brimstone, Robin. So that's something. And then the number they're keeping, 587, you don't even have to necessarily add one for the unity there. And that gives you the demon Paurash or Foros, 
who's from the Latin outside. So you've got a Lovecraft connection. There's your Lovecraft connection. And that total now is 2,490, which if you add the digits, 2 plus 4 plus 9 plus 10 equals 25. And that, like I need to tell you, is the number of Chevach, the beast. So there we are. Some sort of shenaniganry is occurring. Cranston, Rhode Island, building an immense devil containment map with their street signs. That's what's going on. Well, I, I, I thought initially when I when I heard this that it might well be devils. Who do you want to stop from moving around your city? Uh, devils. Devils. Or whose progress do you want to interrupt when you're looking at ultra-terrestrial? So I did think Modrons uh, would possibly be involved, the uh, you know ge- geometrical beings from another plane who would, I think, would be very vulnerable to a whole bunch of additional stops. Especially octagons. They would hate the octagons. But it turns out when you do the research, it's something more normal, uh, as in normal for this podcast we normally talk about, which is ghosts. Right. Because Cranston is the home of the Sprague Museum, which is run now by the Cranston Historical Society. And it is not just haunted, it is super haunted. And it uh, started out as a mansion uh, built in the middle of the 19th century by a, a, a textile manufacturer. He had, a, he had calico dyeing mills, and we'll get to him in a bit. And it eventually uh, went out of use as a mansion. It's a big 28-room manor, so excellent to be a museum. In between, it was a print work, so printers were at work there, and we all know that's a, always a sinister force. Uh, and so, well, they can sort with devils, we know that. Yes. So there's been ghost sightings there since as early as 1925, when a ghostly figure was uh, sighted on the stairs. 1967, it stops being a print works and, and it's been disused for a while. And then it becomes this museum that they have to renovate and build and all sorts of volunteers are involved in that. And that's when the volunteers show up and start looking after the places when the ghost sightings really ramp up because I guess the ghosts were kind of lonely for a while while it was disused or they were discouraged by all the signs of printing. Well, if, they're, they're, if you're not going to, you know, if there's no people around, they're not going to see it. Right. So, this place, for example, used to have a doll room. It's, it was a tiny little closet, and it's exactly what you think a doll room in a haunted manor slash print shop slash museum is going to be. It's a little tiny room full of creepy dolls and marionettes. And a volunteer encountered a something white and filmy in that room. Much uh, later on, a couple of folklorists and givers of ghost tours uh, who wrote about the Sprague Museum in the uh, Cranston Herald report that they photographed dolls uh, and they photographed the fact that the uh, doll's eyes were moving, which was super creepy because the doll's eyes were painted on. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. How that squares with their also saying that the doll room was no longer extant, that's a little unclear in the piece, but... This podcast does not disbelieve in creepy dolls. That's not our thing. No, we actually are a proponent of creepy dolls from the almost from the jump. Right. So there's the wine cellar is also a locus of fright. Uh, there's glowing orbs that are sometimes encountered there. People have experienced the classic icy presence, uh, which is what you want in a wine cellar. Mm-hmm. Uh, ghostly touches and more white filmy things. You want that less in a wine cellar? Right. So the question is, who is the... Who is the ghost? Well, first of all, there's probably multiple ghosts. That's how Mm. haunted manors work. Some say it's Charlie the butler, who was first contacted by students who were sort of on volunteer security guard duty in that period when it was being renovated in 67. And they contacted Charlie via an Ouija board, and he kept spelling my land, my land. Well, I don't think it's Charlie, because this, this sounds like your basic tulpa who's drawn by psychic emanations. And someone who's just named the butler, that's that's obviously, you know, I mean, he's there now. He's a tulpa. Yeah, I mean, maybe if you've got a tulpa, set him into polishing the silver. That right. makes sense. Now, he's used as a, sort of the, the cute ghost mascot of the museum now, and he's a focus of the annual Halloween party. But I think there are better candidates for who the the primary ghost is who've drawn all the other ghosts and manifestations. Various members of the Sprague family have died of uh, suicide or of an infection caused by a bone caught in the throat. But the best candidate would, in fact, be the builder of Sprague Manor, Amasa Sprague, the aforementioned calico dyeing mill owner. On New Year's Eve, 1843, he's found murdered not far from the mansion. He's bludgeoned, shot in the wrist, and bitten by a dog. So if you need trauma to become a ghost, he's got 
that in space. It's almost like someone did that on purpose to turn him into a ghost. Yes. Now, a, an employee at his mill, an Irish immigrant named John Gordon, was fingered for the murder along with his brothers. There's a political element to this in that he was involved in a movement to bring full suffrage to Rhode Island. At that time, it was limited to male landowners. Now, of course, in the middle of the 19th century, full suffrage means full suffrage for all adult white males. Right. But at any rate, he was a political radical or was near other political radicals who thought more people should get to vote. Or he was Irish and thought possibly could have been a political radical. Indeed. Now, Amasa Sprague's brother, William Sprague II, who was then a senator, previously a governor, led the investigation that pointed to John Gordon. And he was tried and hanged. And then almost immediately afterwards, everyone thought, you know, I don't think he did that. And people started looking at uh, William Sprague, the brother, who had a motive because he wanted to expand the business. So at any rate, the conclusion that Gordon had been railroaded led to, not that many years later, the abolition of capital punishment in Rhode Island. And interestingly, Gordon was posthumously pardoned in, listen to this, Ken, 2011. Dun, dun, dun. The same year that the stop signs were legalized and all made official. So obviously, the stop signs were put up by the state, uh, which of course is a greater authority on ectoplasm and ghosts than any Mm -hmm. mere municipality. And they were attempting to contain the movement of ghosts through Cranston. And of course, the, the vengeful ghost of John Gordon being the number one among them and bringing all sorts of other ghosts and chaos and possibly demons and modrons, who knows what. But clearly, the whole point of these stop signs was to impede ghostly traffic through the city. And then finally, obviously, the pardoning and the making official of the uh, stop signs was a way of, if not making peace with the Gordon's ghost, of at least bringing him to heel, of uh, containing his his movements. Well, if you've got a ghost that's been running around since 1843, and I don't rule out a Mesa Sprague as one of your prime ghost-involved people here. Yes, because he was murdered in three different ways, as we've established. Yeah, by his brother, possibly. And so, I feel like you have a a classic doorway to hell situation. And then, apparently, every creepy doll in the New England tri-state area is put in this closet for some reason. That's clearly some sort of an op. So, there is... This would have been nice. If they'd pardoned Gordon, you know, in 1846... Maybe none of this would have happened. But now that that doorway is just gaping wide open. You can't shut that that barn door a hundred odd years later and hope that it's going to work. So the stop signs are clearly a containment field as well as the, you know, and the pardoning of Gordon is at least intended to sort of ritually seal the field, right? That's okay. We're only sealing in these beast ghosts. That's why it's the number of the beast. And that's why we add Lovecraft's outside to it, because without that, you're just sealing in sort of conventional ghosts, which, you know, cold touches in the night aside are basically harmless compared to the sort of horrific, creepy doll type energies that you've unleashed, especially if you're doing Ouija boards in in this place. I mean, come on, people. It's, it's <laughs> basic it's safety. So Delta Green may be right. having to come around. Clearly and, part of that. Yeah. yeah. The, now, possibly Majestic 12 was using it for creepy doll storage and they got all charged up. Yeah. I wouldn't put that past them. Right. They, uh, that's majestic storing all the creepy dolls to give psychic energy so they can work a uh, Roth on the Soviets with them. Annabelle versus Brezhnev. But I feel like the, the guys who are usually running the Providence office are actually kind of relieved to get the ghost job in 67 because I assume that's a bad office at Delta green, a bad desk. Yes. It's a, uh, it's, it's like slough house in, in slow horses. Right. Yeah. Well, before we start developing the Delta Green Slow Horses crossover, I think it's time for us to cross out of this segment and into whatever the heck I've got on the other end of it.
In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation Ugh! In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a forward by Ray Plausibly Deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the Nirvana of Nyarlathe tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. So it's time once again uh, for an episode of Ken's Bookshelf. And to take you a little bit behind the scenes, this is a free-floating bookshelf, as it were, that Ken earlier went to New York City. He went to the Strand Bookstore and to the Steinway Thrift Shop in Queens and brought home a whole bunch of books. But because he did a whole bunch of these closely uh, bunched up in time, uh, rather than give you too much bookshelf, and I think it's, as with anything, it's possible to have too much of, of anything, including bookshelf, we saved this for later and are now presenting you with uh, the spoils now. And so without further ado, Ken, let's traverse our usual trajectory from the serious and historical uh, all the way to the weird and get started with The Life and Death of Ancient Cities and Natural History by Greg Wolf. Yeah, this is a straightforward Oxford University Press can't get any better overview of what we know about how cities in antiquity and before fell. And so it talks about sort of the rise of the city in Sumeria, Uruk and, and Ur and all of that. And what happened to them? Uh, we talk about the Bronze Age collapse. Uh, it talks about the city-states of Greece, the Mycenaean ones that all fell. And then it talks about Rome's city-building trajectory and how Rome built, you know, maybe the first or second truly urban economy. You can make an argument for the Seleucid Empire as the first one, the first truly urban economy in the West. And then what happened when Rome falls? Uh, what happens to all those cities? And it turns out nothing good. But this is just very straightforward. It's great urban history, great ancient history. Sight unseen, I would recommend this. And sight seen, I would absolutely recommend this. Now we come to a heavy hitter of the Elizabethan era. We have a biography of Walter Raleigh, Architect of Empire by Alan Galley. Yeah, the thing that, I mean, first of all, it's a biography of Walter Raleigh. So who doesn't love that? Second of all, I loved that Galley spells it R-A-L-E-G-H in defiance of SEO. Love that. <laughs> I've, ha I've had some SEO run-ins with publishers too. So yes, <laughs> thumbs up, Alan Galley. Yeah, Raleigh actually spelled his name that way. I mean, people in Elizabethan times spelled the name any old which way, but it's cool. And also Alan Galley seems to take on board a lot of the research that says Walter Raleigh was super involved in weird hermetic occult stuff. And he absolutely was. This is almost, you know, rock solid, certainly very conventional scholarship by now. But no one seems to have brought it into their study of Raleigh's life, the whole uh, Elizabethan world picture in that way. And Galley is saying the hermetic and the mystical and the occult part of Raleigh are a big part of who he was. It's why when he got out of the Tower of London, he went to find El Dorado. Lots of stuff about Raleigh that is, you know only explicable because of this mystical bunch of beliefs that he has. And again, solid biography of Raleigh, cool misspelling of his name, nods to John D. I loved this book. Uh, once I looked in the index and saw like Christopher Marlowe was in there, I said, yes, we're doing it. Now, sometimes uh, when you have a great title, you also have a great subtitle. And that's what Keith Thompson has done in Born to be Hanged, the epic story of the gentleman pirates who raided the South Seas, rescued a princess, and stole a fortune. This is about a piratical expedition that happens in 1680. About 300 pirates cross Panama 
and steal boats and build boats and sail around looting Spanish treasure boats in the Pacific. And I think that is, first of all, that's fun. And it's most of your pirates, you get the Caribbean pirates who are great pirates. Sometimes you get the Indian Ocean pirates, also great pirates. Very seldom do you get the sea rovers in the Pacific who aren't Francis Drake. So that is just an amazingly cool lacuna in my own pirate uh, history books. And my pirate shelf needed this book. Plus, as you mentioned, Robin, what a great title and subtitle. Right. And with the pirate shelf, you got to make sure that it doesn't raid the other shelves next to it. You do. You have to give it loot all the time. Gordon Waterfield is up next with Layard of Nineveh. And Layard is the guy that excavated Nineveh, hence his name. But he was also apparently one of those eminent Victorians who does cool political things, had other sort of uh, strange technical adventures. This is just a biography of this guy. I've got tons of archaeology books as it is, so it slots in there. But he seems to be sort of a wild and, and wacky character in his own right. And certainly, if anyone was doing some sort of, you know, uh, Mesopotamian secret history, your Madness dossier type thing, I think that Layard's non-excavating career would be almost as interesting. If you're going to write a book about someone about whom there are many, many uh, books already, one uh, way to do it is to look at a specific vital slice of their life at a turning point, as it were. And that brings us to Catherine Meridale's Lennon on the Train. Yep, this is basically just what it sounds like. This is a blow-by-blow, fly-on-the-wall-you-are-there story of Lenin being packed onto that sealed train by the German Secret Service, the Kaiser's man in Russia, and him going from Switzerland to the Finland station in Petrograd and getting off and dooming 75 million people to their horrible, horrible deaths. So good job, Lenin. Thanks, everybody. Well done, the Kaiser. But it's... You know, it's, it's an absolute, uh, if you're doing a thriller, you're doing a time adventure, you're doing anything like that, or you're just interested in how Lennon got literally to be Lennon, this is how it happened. Speaking of being on the other side of the Lennon stick, we have Paul Nazaroff's Hunted Through Central Asia on the Run from Lennon's Secret Police. Yeah, this is a guy who was a mining engineer, geologist, was hanging out in Tashkent, was pro-white, not pro-red in the Civil War tried to overthrow the Tashkent Soviet. So he was, uh, you know, a prominent white. And guess what, Robin? They lost. So suddenly from being in charge of the Tashkent Soviet, he is hunted by the Tashkent Soviet, and he flees through Central Asia, escaping to Kashgar in China in 1920. And he wrote a cool memoir about it. And so if you are a fan of The Great Game, those great historical books by Peter Hopkirk that came out in the 80s, this is like almost a primary source Although it's a memoir of a guy, so you have to sort of keep one eye on the then I heroically, etc. I assume the following book is about the Japanese occupation of China in that it is called Champions Day, the End of Old Shanghai by Dr. James Carter. Yeah, this is about it's about right before the Japanese occupation of Shanghai in that it is the big horse race that was apparently the center of the social scene in uh, Shanghai. And it's sort of, here's what was going on at that horse race. Here's all the fancy rich people that were there. Here's what's going to happen to them. And it's it's one of those sort of moment in time as a lens through which to see something god awful happen. I've got a ongoing interest in the sort of weird urban life of Shanghai during that era. And this is a great sort of way to look at maybe my stuff is focused a little more on the spies and criminals. So it's it's fun to look at the at the rich Chinese folk who were there as well. Next, we have An Atlas of Extinct Countries by Gideon Defoe. And this is just sort of, you know, I don't quite say it's pop geography, but it's pop geography. And it's a bunch of countries that were very briefly in existence or were thought of by somebody. It's not complete. So the Republic of Pontus is not in there. My favorite extinct country, but lots of others are. And it was, you know, it was, it's remaindered. It's fun. It's a bunch of little anecdote sized things of countries that, briefly existed and then stopped or even existed for a good long time and then super stopped. So it's uh, just, you know, the kind of book that if I weren't doing this, I would probably be doing. So hats off to Gideon Defoe for paying rent with this one. Longtime fans of the bookshelf are probably expecting this to come. We're entering the espionage section of your pile of books from New York. And uh, the first on the list is The Man Who Broke Napoleon's Codes, the story of George Scoville by Mark Urban. Yep. George Scoville was a, he was Robin. I cover your delicate Commonwealth ears, but he was a commoner. And so <laughs> we're all commoners here in the land of the magic beaver. He was attached to uh, Wellington's troop 
and so he could not rise very far at all in rank, except that Wellington noticed this guy's a natural-born codebreaker, and so he just kept promoting him. And so he got to be an officer and a gentleman by the act of the Duke of Wellington, and did so as a result of his facility with math. So there you go, kids. Pay attention in school. Next in the subtitle does a lot of the work for us category, Lincoln Spies, Their Secret War to Save a Nation by Douglas Waller. This is another one of the sort of, and I think this one is trying to pull together the most recent research. A few years ago, a guy noticed that the Union Army's military intelligence files, literally the red tape around them was still intact when he went to look. (laughs) meaning that no one had opened them in a hundred years. Literal red tape. 120 years. And he says, well, that's a thesis, and snips that red tape, and he wrote two very thick books on the Union Army's intelligence service. And I think that sort of woke up a lot of people who were basically just happy to write about the the nice lady who lived in Richmond and told people about Confederates riding down the road or Alan Pinkerton or whatever. And so the fact that there was an actual real intelligence apparatus was born in on people with their weird 20th century fixation. And this is a, a summa of a lot of that research. I don't think it breaks a lot of new ground, but it assembles some, some old ground somewhat usefully, I would hope. Covering something that occurs after an aforementioned horse race, Secret War in Shanghai, an untold story of espionage, intrigue, and treason in World War II by Bernard Wasserstein. And again, you talk about a subtitle that sells it, Espionage, Intrigue, and Treason in Shanghai. I'm there. Can't love it too much. Can't love it enough. It's a wonderful topic. I don't have any particular brief for Bernard Wasserstein one way or the other, but even if all he does is list things in order, he is doing yeoman work. Again, the pre-war Shanghai, the organized crime, I sort of have a good handle on that. It's, you know, once the Japanese attack, what happens to all those guys? What, what goes on? Who are the new players? That's where, let's say, a Trail of Cthulhu game set in Shanghai might uh, become suddenly interesting and valuable. I don't know the time period for this next one, so you'll tell me. Counterfeit Hero, Fritch Decane, Adventure Inspired by Art Ronnie. All right. The time period is 1877 to 1956, which is the lifespan of Fritz Joubert Duquesne, who was a South African. He was a Boer and therefore was again the British. And so being again the British in that time period hooks you up with a lot of dubious characters. So he was a hero of the Boer War, if you're rooting for the Boers. Then he became a spy in South America for the Kaiser. And then he tried to be a spy in America for Weimar and was captured. And then he worked for the Nazis once more in America. And in between wars, he was a big game hunter. He had all kinds of adventures. He hung out with Teddy Roosevelt. He worked in the movies. He lied about being Australian a lot because people couldn't place his accent. He had quite a life, quite a life, and tried to import hippos into Louisiana. So what don't you love about this guy? So not all spying. There's there's a side gig too. That's the adventurer and part of this adventure. So sometimes you might wonder who did all of the actual work and sensible stuff at the CIA. And Nathalia Holt is here to answer that question with wise gals, the spies who built the CIA and changed the future of espionage. When you think about CIA women, you think this is going to be another book about Virginia Hall and surely Ken has enough books about Virginia Hall. First of all, you can never have too many books about Virginia Hall, but it turns out there's other women also in the CIA. Many of them had been very much hardened and yield, if you will, in the OSS era and After the OSS turns into the CIA, they show up to work and say, what can we do to stop communism? And they're patted on the head and told, nothing, little lady, we're not at war. And they objected to that. That would be Adelaide Hawkins, Mary Hutchison, Eloise Page, and Elizabeth Sudmeyer. And one of the things that they did after they were led into the CIA, they did all kind of cool spy adventures against the hated Soviets. But also, they basically sort of, you know, had one of those encounter groups where they said, we're not getting paid enough compared to what these doofus Yaleys are getting paid. And they sort of started a little ruction within the CIA to get women agents to be accepted and promoted and put on the same tracks as male agents. So it's a story of espionage and a story of anti-sexism. And who doesn't love that? Feminist labor action at the CIA. Exactly. That's basically what it is. That's, that's a better subtitle. Yeah. Many fun things, but they know that more people buy spy books than labor action books. Nathalia Holt, no flies on her, I'm sure. Yes, you're correct there. Yes. Well, that's a lot of books. I think it's time for us to uh, take a sip of water, listen to a commercial, but we'll be back afterwards to look at more books and they will steadily get loopier. 
Keep this podcast simple, by which we mean extant, by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Ryan McClelland. Theron Bretz. Louis R. Evans. Kevin H. And Pedro Garcia. And we are indeed back in Ken's bookshelf with The Martial Arts of Ancient Greece, Modern Fighting Techniques from the Age of Alexander by... Costas Dervenas and Nectarios Lycardopoulos. And that is just what it says on the jar. This is a modern martial artist or modern martial arts scholars who have studied Pankration, which is basically what the martial art is that they're talking about, which is a sort of a Greek wrestling, but it's more like what we see as MMA now than proper Greco-Roman wrestling, because there's a lot of, you know, dirty hits and stuff. And so they went back to the you know, paintings on faces and descriptions in the texts. And they said, let's try and build this and see what techniques still exist, both within modern Greco-Roman wrestling and within modern recreations of Pancration and try and, you know, build it out. So it's a book for martial artists. And it's also a book for people who like the exciting part of the classical era, amongst whom I count myself. The title of the next book, Ken, implies to me that people who know a lot about iambic pentameter can also be mean jerks to each other. Because it's called The Shakespeare Wars, Clashing Scholars, Public Fiascos, Palace Coups by Ron Rosenbaum. And this is going to be your common beef that we over-egg the pudding with the subtitles because the clashes are yelling at each other in footnotes. (laughs) The public fiasco is people who go to academic conferences and the palace is the tiny academic palace. There is nothing in the real world is affected really by people arguing about Shakespeare, which is part of what makes it so fun, but also part of what makes it so heated. As they say, the stakes are so low, so the tempers are very high. Yes, they knew better than to call it English department faculty politics. Right. And and so this is, if you want to get a rundown on the basic controversies, not the authorship controversy, the ridiculous ones, but the straightforward regular controversies like what order were the plays written in? How often did he see his wife? You know, what percentage of the plays were written with other people, especially later on? These sorts of basic Shakespearean scholarship arguments, this gives you a, he said, also he said, usually, and you know, you can pick a side, you can follow Ron Rosenbaum with a sort of a detached joy that people are still this head up over a guy who died just about exactly 400 years ago. That's good. That's good for Shakespeare. That's good for America. That's good for everybody. <laughs> I think that's pretty solid. Yeah. Next, we come to a, a writer who I've read, but not a book I've read, Elaine Silver's The Samurai Film. I bet it's good. It's Elaine Silver. Elaine Silver is a film scholar, well-known, and he does genre studies of films. I am the proud owner of the latest edition of his book, The Vampire Film. And when you see a used copy of The Samurai Film, it seems like a, a no-brainer to grab it. It's going to be lots and lots of this guy saying, what are the core elements of a samurai film and uh, everyone's hand go up and say a samurai. And he says, not so fast. And it's going to be great. And there's going to be lots of cool pictures of Kurosawa and lesser lights. It's going to be good. And I'll send you to the criterion collection to type in all these titles you haven't seen. Right. Exactly. Speaking of things that are horrible, uh, it turns out that the nineties were so long ago that nineties icons are writing memoirs. For example, Horror Stories, a memoir by Liz Fair. Yeah, this is uh, the gift for Sheila in this hall. Sheila and I both uh, discovered Liz Fair when the world did, although as Chicagoans, we discovered her a little bit earlier than the rest of the world. And this is her memoir, which is told in sort of fiction-styled or fictionized. There's sort of this new, not that new, but this newly popular memoirist fiction, which is supposed to be both true, but also told through fictional techniques. Liz Fair is adapting that to tell various tales of her own life and rock and roll uh, rise to global fame and belovedness. We have a bundle of three, all by Edward R. Tuft. We have Envisioning Information. We have Visual Explanation, Images and Quantities, Evidence and Narration. And then finally, we have Beautiful Evidence. Edward Tufty is still with us, thank goodness. He is a statistician. He is a professor, used to teach uh, political science at Yale. Then he sort of noticed that you can't tell anything about things unless you know how statistics work. Then he realized that 
statisticians are the dullest people in the world and said, put some illustration in and got himself into computer science because he was writing when computer science was becoming a thing. So he basically created the field almost of statistical graphics, how you use information visually and, and, and uh, teach it. He loves the, the great chart of Napoleon's grand army shrinking as it marches to Moscow. He says that's the first great infographic. And much of his work is sort of how to do a thing half that good, a quarter of that good, how to make it good, how to not mislead people. His most famous work in 1983, The Visual Display of Quantitative Information. I've owned a hard copy of that forever in, in hardback. I love it. I'm, I'm uh, proud of it. And this opportunity, this is the one of the um, thrift shop finds. This was all the other Edward R. Tufties, or all the other ones in that section, anyway. So someone must have died, and their relative took those books to the thrift shop. Or Edward Tufty's books are required reading in a lot of classes. Oh, there we go. <laughs> and so all of them were in this, including the one that I knew I already owned. All of them were in this lovely shelf in beautiful condition, a buck fifty a piece. So it was the work of a moment to pile them all up in my arms and carry them home, where I discovered that in fact. They were so great, I already owned two of them, but at a dollar fifty apiece, the fact that I've paid four fifty for beautiful evidence shakes me not a whit. I bet there's someone in your Chicago circle who you can re-gift that to. Exactly. Young John Harness is going to be gifted with Edward Tufty. Now I'm looking at the the final list and I'm starting to realize that I somewhat overpromised kookiness because we have fanciful topics, but it looks like we've mostly uh, got them by responsible writers, and there is no more responsible or uh, more readable and interesting author than Adrian Mare, and you picked up her Flying Snakes and Griffin Claws and Other Classical Myths, Historical Oddities, and Scientific Curiosities. Yeah, this is a collection of essays that she's published in various formats, various publications over the years, going all the way back to her very first bunch of essays about Griffin Bones. And I mean, what can we say, Robin? You and I have praised Adrian Mare to the skies. It's Adrian Mare essays by them. There we go. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, yeah, and it's about Adrian Mayer stuff. It's not about things that Adrian Mayer doesn't care about. So buy it twice. Well, at least now we have an actual magic tome on the mm-hmm. list. That's plenty weird. We have Hermetica, the Greek Corpus Hermeticum, and the Latin Asclepius in a new English translation with notes and introduction by Brian P. Copenhaver. And as I've alluded to before, if you're talking about a classic work, there are usually some sort of stodgy Victorian translation online. You can find what it actually says if you care that much. What you want is new scholarship. The notes in the introduction are the real draw here. And the Corpus Hermeticum, of course, kickstarted the Renaissance in in many senses. It was the big book of sort of uh, mystic insight and occult truths, allegedly dug up by Alexander the Great from between the paws of the Sphinx is one version, written down by Hermes himself, hence its name, the Corpus Hermeticum. And the Latin Asclepius, written by Hermes's buddy Asclepius, apparently. So that's two great magical texts for the price of one. And with a 20th century, I don't think it's 21st century, sadly, but at least with a more up-to-the-moment interpretational structure around it. So if you actually care about the Hermeticum, as opposed to just want to mine it for nonsense, this would also be a good book to get. No one will ask themselves why you picked up The Diamond Path, Tibetan and Mongolian Myth, by Michael Kerrigan. It's a one of those straightforward, you know, we've all seen the books, Egyptian mythology, Greek mythology, Norse mythology. We all own those books. What I did not own was one of those books that said Tibetan and Mongolian mythology. And oh my goodness, you want to talk about great mythologies. These are two of the great ones. And uh, they're allied because the Tibetans and the Mongolians are sort of cousin peoples. They've conquered each other back and forth. Tibet used to own Mongolia in the ninth century. Then Mongolia owned Tibet under the Mongol empire. So it's a it's it's great fun for everyone, and it's lots of weird stuff that's sort of sidewise onto Buddhism and sidewise onto Hinduism, but it's its own weird, wonderful, and of course, once you get deep into the Mongol stuff, shamanic uh, magic, and it's uh, it, it the only sad thing is it's one of those sort of overview books, and it's not five hundred pages on it. So sometimes, as in that last example, you will pick up a book because you don't have anything on that topic, and sometimes you'll pick up a book because you have many things on that topic. Which brings us to The Grail Legend by Emma Young and Mary Louise von Franz. And as one could perhaps guess by the authors, this is a Jungian interpretation of the Grail stories. It 
basically retells or even quotes extensively from various grail legends and annotates them and discusses them in terms of Jungian psychology. And Jungian psychology, regardless of its uh, virtue or lack thereof as understanding the human mind, turns out to be a dandy way to make nonsense up about the Holy Grail. So I am excited to dive into that next time I'm going Grail Town, which might be as soon as next year if uh, my players decide they want to play Pendragon. Good Jungian influence stuff is invaluable for writers with a mythic bent. And you know what? A spoiler, I bet Finding the Grail is about individuation. What do you think? Speaking of trying to make somebody interesting, here's... (laughs) Here's someone who's taken on a task. Rosicrucian America, How a Secret Society Influenced the Destiny of a Nation by Stephen Sora. Did they influence other other than like having newsletters? Well, this is where you do the little shuffle step, the beloved shuffle step of writers like Stephen Sora, who is a trencherman, a, a laborer in these areas, has written a number of fun books on this vague topic. But you begin by saying the Rosicrucians, the invisible society of the 1620s, claimed that they were connected to all these other movements. Obviously, they were. And obviously, Francis Bacon and John Dee, who both said things that sounded like later authors quoting them, must have been Rosicrucians. And once you say Francis Bacon and John Dee are Rosicrucians, it's easy to say how they influence America. They're interesting. Ergo, they're Rosicrucians. Ergo Propter Hawk. It's Ergo Imagine Hawk, I guess. And then also Stephen Sora doing his his good work as the Proto-Confederate Knights of the Golden Circle. He has the Georgia Guidestones, just whatever's happening on the History Channel. He bops that in. So it's a a bit of a gallimaufry, a bit of a nonsense. But Stephen Sora, he works hard and the book was cheap. Next, we come to Louise Pound's Nebraska folklore, which I assume is not about the urban legends about the making of the Springsteen record. No, that would be a good book, and I would buy that even faster, but this is just, you know, cryptids and ghosts and hide-behinds and, you know, what we used to do back in the day on the prairie. And so, you know, part of this was bought to troll Sheila with. Part of it was bought because, you know, if you're doing Lovecraftian stuff set in the American Midwest, Nebraska folklore is going to be just as susceptible to that as the Oklahoma folklore that Lovecraft mostly made up for uh, The Mound and other stories. Well, next time we do a ripped from the headlines from something that happens in Nebraska, you'll reach for that and find a weird connection to slot in. Ideally, yes. And finally, we come to The Pyramids and the Pentagon, the government's top-secret pursuit of mystical relics, ancient astronauts, and lost civilizations by Nick Redfern. Please tell me this one is kooky. Oh, yeah. Nick Redfern is one of America's, or Britain's, I don't know where he's from, somewhere. One of the planets. One of the Atlantic world's top ufologists. And he loves to look for UFOs, and he talks about Rendlesham, and he talks about Roswell, and he's just there talking about UFOs. And I think Nick Redfern, even Nick Redfern, got bored one day and said, what if I talked about ancient astronauts? And what if I pretended that the last scene in Indiana Jones was real? And so he went and found various times when the U.S. government, either for perfectly good reasons or perfectly stupid reasons, backed various archaeological expeditions. You know, I'm not sure how far back he goes. I don't know if he goes back to the search for the hollow earth that we supposedly did in the 1820s, but I'm sure that he's going to talk about various Pentagon efforts to infiltrate archaeologists into troublesome areas in the world, which there have been ample of and various activities in Central America that could be colored as looking for lost pyramids and whatnot. So I feel like Nick Redfern combines the sort of weird, obsessive mindset. He combines the sort of lack of interest in actual historiography, and he combines a sort of a knowledge of what can be credibly spun. Well, credibly is a strong word. What can be funly spun as can a, be based on movies and spun as a government action. He's, he's looked at a ton of government documents in his UFO career. And so I feel like this suits him well to look at government documents about imaginary archaeology. Well, that makes up for the general responsibility of your myth section uh, this time around. Well, it's New York. It's it a busy town. Everyone's very serious there. No kooks, nothing like that. So we've completed our retrospective book responsibilities and therefore have completed this episode of the podcast, but we'll be back next week with more of the similar stuff. Having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors, Atlas games, Pelgrane press, arc dream, dork tower and pro fantasy software. 
Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Stop unauthorized signs from destroying this podcast by joining estimable backers. Toonspew. Chihiro Yamada. Garrett Fitzgerald. Hyperlexic. And Jake B. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Grab our latest design. I hate this stupid argument. Please start the next stupid argument. On X, he's at Kenneth Height. And on Blue Sky, he's robindlaws.bisky.social. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>